Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, it is Monday, the 2nd of August. How high can you jump? How high can you jump? Um, now, my answer to the question is not very high. I'm, I'm just not, I'm not a jumper. In fact, people who know me well are now, they have spewed their coffee out their nose. Uh, yeah, because I'm not a jumper. There's nothing jumpy about me. I don't do plyometrics. Like, I'm not a jumper. However... On Sunday, two guys, one from Italy and one from Qatar, uh, each jumped seven feet, nine and a quarter inches, 2.37 meters. Um, And then they each attempted to make the next jump of 2.39 meters, and neither one of them could do it after three attempts. And so in the Olympics, what do you do when two people have achieved the same height, seven feet, nine and a quarter inches, flawlessly, beautiful, beautiful uh, jumps? I don't know how I'm supposed to say that. Um, uh, And so in this men's high jump final, the uh, uh, the rules people were standing around talking about what to do. And one of the competitors just broke in and said, can we have two golds? And while they were trying to explain, uh, these two gentlemen shook hands and the crowd went wild and they both got a gold medal. Sharing the spotlight, sharing the gold, I don't know. It was an Olympic moment that I hope we do not soon forget. It is what competition and achievement and hard work and shared success ought to look like. So hats off today to these two men from Italy and Qatar and this extraordinary story out of uh, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. A couple other stories to cover out of the Olympics today. Jade Carey. American female gymnast has won the gold for the floor exercise. So I want to celebrate that victory with her as well. And in a an equally dramatic but far less joyful scene at the airport in Tokyo, a young Belarusian woman refused to board her plane. She has now been offered asylum in Poland. She sought protection uh, out of fear of being jailed upon returning home because she criticized her coaches. So it's just a lot of young people dealing with a lot of stress and struggle, um, and it's not just all joy. And so let's be mindful of that today as well. Dr. Linda Mental joins us next. Can I love someone into changing? Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. I think God loved me into changing, but I bet that's not the point that Linda's going to make. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. 
Dr. Linda Mental joins me now. You can hear her on the Dr. Linda Mental Show. You can also find her at drlindamental.com. Linda, welcome back. Hey, it's good to talk to you again. It's been a little bit. How high, how high can you jump? This is the question of the day. How high can I jump? Probably not mm-hmm. very high Mm-mm. at this point in my life. Me either. <laughs> Me either. Is this an Olympic question? Is this something yes. to do with the Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Sorry. So two, two men, one from Italy and one from Qatar, both made a really extraordinary uh, high jump. Um, and then they each tried, you know, to go to the next to raise the bar and neither one of them could achieve the next higher thing. So they, uh, it ended in a tie. So both of them got the gold medal. Oh, wow. I missed that. I know. Well, they chose to do that. They could have had a jump off. That's one one of the things that the, uh, Olympic rules allow for. Um, but they decided, no, no, let's just, let's just have a tie. Let's both get gold. I know that is an amazing sport when you look at how they do that and what they do. It's, it's incredible. I got I got no idea. The bendiness of the human body. My, I'm not that bendy and I'm not that jumpy. Okay. You have another no sp- Carmen, you have another purpose in life. It's not to jump I do. High. That is so true. Okay. Um, can I love someone into changing? Good luck with that. <laughs> a lot of people try it. Let me tell you, a lot of people try it. And uh, they think that if they're just somehow you know, supportive enough and loving enough that somehow it's, it, they're going to make a difference. It's actually one of the, one of the chapters in my book, I married you, not your family is I can make someone change. And mm. it's one of the myths of the, the 10 myths of dealing with couples and changes is that you can certainly respond to people in certain ways that might encourage their change, but you can't make another person change. So I think that, you know, when I consider the question, I do feel, you know, God, God loved me to the point where I recognized the things about myself that were out of alignment. I continue to. It's not done by any stretch of the imagination um, where I continue to recognize things about myself. But it's still me submitting and becoming willing to change and then doing the hard work of change. Um, I mean, I think that for Christians... The question about love, um, if if I'm constantly focused on the ways in which another person, quote unquote, needs to change, then I think there's probably a question there about whether or not I just love them for who they are and as they are. Well, it's it's frustrating in relationships because you just think in your head, if this person would only or if this person would do this, then our lives would be better or our relationship would be better. And so what we tend to do is something that I I talked about in the blog called the writing reflex. And and doctors do this all the time. They tell you, this is what you need to do to get better. And so in our relationships, we'll often say to somebody, you know, if you would just fix this about yourself, then our relationship would be better. The problem is when you do that to another person and you try to fix them, the other person has this, it's like almost like an instinct of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it because you're telling me to do that. And while we might not say that outright to another person in a relationship, there really is that tendency to push back against that. And when you think about why, why don't people change? I mean, people don't wake up, you know, one day and say, you know, I'm a narcissist. I really need to change that about myself because people don't like it. 
or people don't wake up and say, I'm an irritable person in my relationship and I know that's bothering my wife. I need to do, I need to fix that. I mean, people don't change for a variety of reasons. A lot of times they don't believe they can. Uh, sometimes they try really hard in the, in the case of drug addiction, people don't want to wake up and use the next day. They want to make that change, but they just can't seem to to get there because of the obstacles, because of the barriers that are in front of them that they might need some help navigating. So when you're making a change, there are two things that are really, really important. It has to be important to you, first of all. So a lot of times we're asked to change things about ourselves and we, we kind of go, yeah, okay, but it's not really that important. Um, maybe for somebody, they've been told you need to lose some weight. You think, yeah, okay, maybe I do, but it's really not going to be my priority in life. The second really uh, thing about change is that you have to feel really confident that you can make it happen. And that's where I'm talking about the barriers. A lot of people want to do things differently, but they're kind of in this endless cycle of doing things the same, or they can't get past certain things in order to make it better. And so they get really stuck in that in that place. And some people just don't want to change. And they're very, um, you know, self-centered of this is who I am, take it or leave it uh, in a relationship. And And I really don't think that that's a marker of the Christian, because we know that the Christian faith is just marked, like you said, by transformation. The whole point of the Holy Spirit in us is so that we can be changed and we can walk more in the love of Christ and more towards that Christian love that would make us treat people differently. So I don't buy that when people say I can't change. I go, well, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then change is definitely possible. It might be hard, but it's possible. If you go to drlindamental.com, you are looking for uh, a post, can I love someone into changing? I love the list that you include here. I can't make another person change, but I can encourage change. I can change me. I can work on changing me. I can avoid the writing reflex. And we're not talking there about, you know, writing something down with my hand, but writing in terms of right and wrong, like writing, telling them something is Right. Giving constant advice, giving less information and doing more listening. Boy, that one's really good. I I really liked this one. Talk about the obstacles to change. So, Linda, when we come back from this very brief break, can we unpack that one a little bit? Because that one seems very encouraging and empowering. So we're talking with Dr. Linda Mental. Can I love someone into change? We are going to talk about what you and I can do to help someone remove the obstacles that might be in their way to achieving a change they want to make in their own life. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Talking with Dr. Linda Mental from the Dr. Linda Mental Show. You can find what we're talking about today at drlindamental.com. The top three uh, pieces there, we um, we are covering I don't know that we have time to cover them all. But the first one is, can I love someone into changing? And then I definitely want to get to the question, uh, is being selfish genetic or learned? So, um, so Linda, talk about the, uh, the ways in which we can encourage change without sort of living with the expectation that I'm going to actually change somebody else. 
Yeah, so I think the, the best way to do this is to ask somebody in your life. So let's say you're in a relationship and you you really think that there's a big problem here, that maybe the person, let's just in the piece, I said maybe the person needs to stop drinking because drinking is causing a lot of problems. Rather than telling them that over and over, which again, as we talked about, they'll just push back on that and they'll feel very failed and they won't, because they, they, they probably have tried and have been unsuccessful. Instead, it would be better to ask them, so you know, what is your goal? What would you like? What's getting in your way? Um, and a lot of times people will tell you, well, you know, I'd really, I'd really think that my drinking is causing some problems. So they're coming up with that idea. And then you say, well, what gets in the way of that? What makes it difficult for you to do that? And it, and the person may start talking because people know what creates the problem. If they, if you really ask them and you listen to them. So you might ask somebody that and they'll say, well, you know, I, a lot of times I have friends who go uh, after work and they go drinking and they always invite me and I don't want to be antisocial. So I end up going and then I end up drinking and then I, you know, I'm in that pattern again and I feel like I can't stop. Or they might say, you know, I have a lot of stress in my life and I just, you know, if I just come home and have a, have a, a beer or two and then I calm down a little bit and you're getting at what is it? And then you can talk about, are there any other ways that you could deal with those things? Like, how could you handle the whole situation of the friends at work and being a part of the office? Are there any other ways that you could be a part of that without having to go to a bar or go drinking with somebody, since that's something you don't want to do? It's helping the person think through how else could they get through their goals. And the, the really amazing part of this, Carmen, is that when you do that with people, people can think it through. And can say what works for them. And then once they do, they've thought of it. It's their motivation. It's internal to them. And the chances of them doing it are way greater than if you ask, if you tell someone what to do. So I think it's just a matter of saying what gets in the way. Sometimes change is hard because you don't have another way to cope with something. Sometimes it's hard because you really don't know what the options are. Sometimes I, I was working with this woman who wanted to try to to stop her drinking uh, because it was causing a lot of problems in her life and her health. And, it, you know, she, she needed to do that. And one of the big obstacles was she lived right behind an ABC liquor store. So yeah. every time she would leave her house, she would see the store and it would trigger her to want to drink. So honestly, one of the things we really talked about was actually moving, moving away from that store would be really, she came up with that idea. She said, I don't think I can do this if I see it every day. And I said, what do you think would work? And she came up with that idea and then she was very successful. So getting people to tell you because they know and having them think through, if your life changed in this way, how would it look different? And people can give you a lot of good ideas and then they can start doing it themselves. All right, we're talking with Dr. Linda Mental uh, for the Dr. Linda Mental Show. You can find what we are talking about today at drlindamental.com. Linda, let's, um, let's quickly do the next one about selfishness. Is it genetic or is it learned? Yeah, so that's a yes and no. So sorry, I can't give a definitive answer on that. But, you know, it's been interesting. I've always been interested in that question. And there is uh, there is a, a bunch of research that recently came out that, you know, we're always looking for genetic markers. And is there a gene that some people have that maybe makes this more prominent in their life than other people? And there was some there was a recent study that showed that there could be a couple of genes that are involved in the sort of natural a tendency to be to be selfish. Now, when I say that, if you have a gene for something, it doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be that way. 
So I get real, you know, um, real cautious when I say this to people, because just because you have a marker for something, some people have a marker for depression. There is a big genetic influence on, on substance use. Um, people are more prone based on their genetics. So selfishness could be a little bit there with genetics, but we think that the environment obviously has a lot to do with it in terms of how you teach people. And it's it's very easy. You have to be consistent. You have to make it intentional, but you can teach a child to be less selfish and to be more sharing and giving. But you've noticed it. You've noticed it with two kids. You can see a child on a playground who is you know playing along and then just go and the other person's the other child says give me your toy and the and the child says sure no problem and the child gives it just has this sort of giving personality and then the other one who stubbornly holds on to it and says no you can't have it <laughs> you know i wouldn't i wouldn't get too hung up on uh oh my child is genetically programmed to selfishness might be a little in there but certainly you can always modify and change and again as we've talked about in the first segment when the Holy Spirit is in a person, that transformation, that change is possible. And even when you're feeling weak to make a change, um, you know, the Bible says that when you're weak, he is strong and he can give you what you need through the power of the Holy Spirit, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit uh, is what the word says. I just love it. So I noted um <clears throat> on your blog that you also have a post about uh, this question, a little porn is good for you. Um, and so that was intriguing. And I want people to know that it's there. You can go to drlindamental.com and read that. I just really want your hot take on a headline about um, out of out of England where a journalist posted on Twitter. She has since taken the post down, but where she was advocating that there be like intro porn for kids. Oh my gosh, this is, this is like saying a little cocaine is great for you. You know, this is a very addictive thing. It's a very destructive thing. Introducing it into children is, to me, would be child abuse. Um, you know, it's a distortion of the beauty of sexuality that God created that is between a man and a woman in a marriage. And this whole idea and it's, it's taking hold because there's so much pornography and there's so many people who want to normalize it and include it. I'm telling you, Carmen, I've been in this business for 30 years. I've never seen it go well. It is always destructive. It is always one of those things that leads to death. And I don't really understand in the age where we're trying to empower women and create more equality, why you would, you would allow something to, into anybody's mind that objectifies and degrades a person and makes them an object instead of a person. So, you know, we could go on this topic for a long time because I've seen the destruction. Uh, it never has a good end for anybody who uses it. So can you use a little porn? No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It is an addictive thing that requires more and more. You build a tolerance. You get weirder and weirder. And what satisfies you, novelty in the brain, is something the brain seeks, and it gets to a very destructive end. So let's put a stop to that right now and say it's never good for you. How's that? <laughs> it's never good for you, and we should never intentionally try to be introducing it to children. Like it's anyway. Oh <clears throat> I felt like I knew where you would take that, so I felt comfortable just throwing that into the mix. So thank you so very much. Dr. Linda Mental, as always, um, a reliable resource at the intersection of relationships and the Christian faith, a really wonderful um, counselor and guide in the conversations 
that we are all needing to have, whether or not we're having them. Whole nother question. Uh, but you can find what Linda is working on at drlindamental.com, and you certainly should tune into her show, The Dr. Linda Mental Show, right here on the Faith Radio Network. We'll be right back. All right, we've all uh, read or heard about the headlines out of Canada related to um, the deaths of children who attended Canada's residential schools that were church-run. We're going to have an extended conversation about that next with Douglas Farrow from McGill University. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You know, we've been taught that the Christian life is a life of peace. And when we don't have peace, well, we assume that the problem lies within us. Not only do we feel anxious, but we feel guilty about our anxiety. And the result is a downward spiral of worry, guilt, worry, guilt. It's enough to make us wonder if the Apostle Paul was out of touch with reality when he wrote in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. It's the life of perpetual anxiety that Paul wanted to address. Don't let anything in life leave you perpetually breathless and in angst. Yes, the presence of anxiety is unavoidable, but the prison of anxiety That's optional. This is Max Lucado. Residential schools built by churches, not only here in the United States of America, but around the world, are now in uh, under what I would describe as growing scrutiny. Douglas Farrow joins me from McGill University. Um, Douglas, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Let's talk about the history of Canada's residential schools. I am looking at your article in First Things, dated the 10th of July, um, under that under that head, the history of Canada's residential schools. Tell us the story. Well, it's a it's a a story that um, is driven by some misreporting and by some uh rather strong responses to that misreporting in in the briefest possible uh um description of what's at stake here uh it concerns a history of more than 100 years of attempts to provide education to indigenous uh families indigenous children in Canada that began with um, mission schools back in the eight, you know the second half of the 1800s and uh, morphed into uh, schools that were um, mandated and funded by the government but still uh, run in most cases by church organizations both Catholic and Protestant and um, these schools were very poorly funded um uh they had uh they were funded per capita so it was important to get as many students there as possible to try to make ends meet and uh about um uh well about 
10 to 12 percent of the native population pass through these schools. It, um, many of the, the, the children who were educated there for something between a few months and several years um, uh, died while they were at uh, these schools because this was a period, of course, before uh, modern uh, medicine and uh, and diseases were rampant, particularly tuberculosis, which native children were much more susceptible to even than uh, the immigrant uh, European children. And um, the Spanish flu went through and there were other diseases. And so a great many of these uh, students, relatively speaking, uh, suffered illness and died uh, uh, during their time at school or shortly thereafter. Actually, many came to the schools already sick with tuberculosis because uh, amongst the, the part of the population that did not attend these schools, you had exactly the same sorts of problems. But they were exacerbated in the schools by the fact that people were brought together, put into fairly crowded facilities that were underfunded, and um, and so uh, when a student would die, they would be that that person would usually be buried in in the local cemetery, which might be right outside the school. Um, and a simple wooden cross put over their grave, simple ceremony said, uh, because the government would not pay for their body to be shipped way back to the north where they came from. Uh, or, or to some other distant place. And uh, of course, over the years, these cemeteries have uh, deteriorated and uh, their fences are gone. Many of the wooden crosses are gone. Uh, it was known approximately where they were and the, the, the uh, process of trying to bring healing between the, um, the government and the churches who, who ran these schools and the native population uh, was already underway and money was already being used to restore some of these graveyards. But it got into the press uh, uh, this summer when uh, some work was done to try to locate these cemeteries more exactly and discover how many plots were in them. This somehow got out into the media as you know, mass graves discovered and people connected it with child abuse, sexual abuse, uh, et cetera, and, and immediately jumped to conclusions that dark secrets had been exposed, uh, which is not the case. And indeed, they assumed that most of the people and perhaps even all the people in these cemeteries were native children, whereas in fact, uh, these were community cemeteries for the poor and in, in some cases. In others where they were smaller and attached just to the school, they probably are mostly people who attended the school or who worked at the school. Anyways, it got out in, into, the, into the public eye in a really um, uh, inaccurate form, and there was tremendous reaction. Uh, you know, people uh, in sackcloth and ashes, so to say, except that their chosen way of repentance in some cases was to go out and burn churches, uh, beginning with churches on native lands, um, burning native churches, <laughs> churches built and attended uh, by natives. And eventually that extended to burning any church that was handy. So a Coptic Orthodox church burned, a Vietnamese immigrant church burned, 
Um, there were some 45 churches in all so far that have suffered either either being burned to the ground or uh, vandalized by fire or other means. Uh, most of them did not burn to the ground, but there were there were uh, s- uh, several that did. So it's been it's been a, a time of uh, a considerable amount of misinformation, uh, something that we're used to on another front these days. Hmm. Dr. Douglas Farrow is a professor of theology and ethics at McGill University, and he's speaking to us, you know, from Canada. Um, when we talk about Canada's residential schools that were church-run, um, part of what was going on historically is that there was compulsory education for children of this, you know, of this particular age group, and yet there were not day schools in these communities uh, that that children could attend. So I think part of this conversation is uh, is a misunderstanding um, of history itself, just in terms of what was available to families, um, how things changed when governments were established that were certainly different than the governments that existed prior to um, you know the the arrival of settlers and then the establishment of uh, federal government um, in you know, throughout North America, like this is a conversation. I mean, I know that there are people listening who think, oh, well, this only happened in Canada. There weren't residential schools in the United States that were church run. Oh, oh, contraire. There were lots of church run residential schools in the United States. And so I think that getting um, a handle on this conversation and being sure that we know what the history is in terms of the way that government, the government, both uh, on the northern and the southern sides of the Canadian-U.S. border, the way that the government used and utilized church-run schools, church-operated schools throughout the Americas um, to educate all kinds of children, not only indigenous children, but other children as well. I'm um, like, this is going to be a, a larger conversation, and and I would like to see us get uh, get a handle on it before here on our side of the border, people are burning down churches. Like, I regret that it's happening in Canada, but right, it's like a sober, like, wake-up call. Yes, I think I think that's right. Of course, you, you've had some vandalism of churches with the BLM movement and so forth, so that the the idea that you 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 take out your your righteous indignation uh, in that fashion is certainly not um, a new idea for you. And if this same issue uh, should should um, come into focus down there, you, you you may well see that that sort of thing. And you're quite right. This was not a, a uniquely Canadian thing at all. Um, in fact, it wasn't even unique to the Americas. And these things are being examined. Um, Throughout the the Anglosphere, um, but uh, the, the the missions, the Christian missions uh, to indigenous peoples, uh, belong to the very earliest um, uh, history of Europeans present in North America. That is, um, the our, you know the Caucasian uh, Europeans primarily, uh, the new ones. Uh, these people. Uh, uh, came here too once upon a time the the indigenous people but um but the 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 reason in in those days it was much more common for the government and and the churches to 
to um, to make agreements to see to the education of 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 students who uh, of these indigenous families who were not students in the in the European sense. They were students in the indigenous sense. They learned to trap. They learned to to uh, to make a living off the land. But when that all looked like changing. Uh, there was, uh, I think, on the whole, a very well-intentioned uh, agreement, and many of the native bands, the the tribal uh, leaders, agreed that the students would need to be educated and understand, as far as possible, the ways of the of the now uh, a more, more populous and dominant European sort of civilization. Because the churches had already been ministering to them on all sorts of levels, medically, uh, as well as educationally, as well as in, of course, their mission, their evangelism. Uh, and, and indeed, some of the tribes had already converted to Christianity. Um, it was natural for the government to look to the churches. The, the, the same problems that we have still today, uh, however, about what happens to the church's missions when the government steps in with the funding and makes the rules. Um, mm -hmm. were already present back then. And that did lead to situations for which both the churches and the government uh, uh, are responsible, uh, putting children at risk by, by having them in these crowded dormitories, etc., when there were so many plagues uh, around that could take this kind of toll. So I don't think, it, I don't think anybody who's thinking about this very hard uh, can excuse um, it, it, the the people who are responsible for this, but it should be it should be allowed that that some of their intentions on both the the part of the churches and the governments were were very positive intentions, and it should also be allowed that uh, that in these residential schools uh, you had only a minority of the of the First Nations uh, children. Um, uh, it, the same kinds of troubles happened uh, outside the residential schools, in the day schools, or amongst those who didn't go to school at all. Uh, so it's not just a residential school problem, but there are certain dimensions of it that were worsened by the residential schools. And the story out there is that these were these were hellish places, but that's, there are many other stories that say they were not hellish places. Some were, some weren't. Uh, yeah. Some people speak very fondly and went on to major leadership positions in the country and in the First Nations communities telling, uh, telling positive stories about their experiences in the residential schools. So, yes, one has to look at the whole history of this and not simply react to a few exaggerated uh, media reports and uh, people taking the law into their own hands, as it were, in burning churches. I'm talking with Professor Douglas Farrow from McGill University. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Professor Douglas Farrow. Um, Doug, is there anything that you would like to say in terms of wrapping up this conversation? I ran, I ran over a break though, there, so you and I just have a couple of minutes left to talk. Right. Well, um, back in the town where I went to school, where some of these uh, uh, graves were discovered and reported recently, the the uh, the chief of that tribe um, uh, today, uh, with whom I 
I actually uh, attended school at one point myself, um, said, look, there's no discovery. We, we knew it was a graveyard, and the fact that there are graves inside a graveyard shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Those are her words, uh, Chief Sophie Pierre. Um, and, and this is a major lesson, I think, to people about, about what they hear on, on newscasts or see in the newspapers. They need to look deeper, whether it's this issue or some of the other issues that people are facing us with. Or rather, yeah, than and, we we as people are facing. Yeah, and the, the the local texture that you bring us from the conversation is so important. And so, thank you so much for joining us today, helping us understand this uh, concern, this issue, this development, um, and just giving us a a window into what's happening north of the border. Recognizing that you know the border between Canada and America is really meaningless in terms of these conversations. Culturally, we're it very much indeed. dealing with the same so, things. So is the is the question that always faces churches when they allow their own mission to be, um, as it were, uh, taken taken in hand by the government. Things go wrong, um, and I think there are lessons on that front that we need to learn as well. Mm, that is so helpful. Doug McGill, thank you, or Doug Farrow from McGill University. Thank you uh, so very much. Friends, we got to take You're one more break. Welcome. And we'll be... Good to speak thank with you. you. Likewise. We'll be right back. For those of you who are uh, texting in all kinds of things related to that last story, um, yeah, I actually have uh, a fair amount of history with a church residential school here in the United States of America that was constructed specifically for the education of Native children in the Nacuchi area of northwest, uh, northeast Georgia. And so, um, yeah, it's not like I'm ignorant of what I speak. So I recognize, and to your point, for those of you texting in, um, I recognize that horrible things happened. No one is denying that horrible things happened. Um, the media's coverage of this particular storyline is um, is what is challenging to those of us who have long recognized this as the history of these institutions. And so... It's a little bit like uh, people who just wake up to the reality that uh, the United States of America interred, in, uh, interred millions of uh, Japanese Americans who were full citizens of the United States and put them in concentration camps. And they lost their homes and their businesses in World War II. Like, do we know that history? Yes. Do some people just suddenly wake up to it? Yes. Is it any less horrible? No. Um, and do we need to be talking about it? Yes. Am I going to um, focus in on specific cases for which we don't have um, particularly good physical evidence? No, I'm not. So for those of you looking for those particular storylines, that's probably not going to happen. I'm trying to help us see the big issue here of the way in which churches in the Americas and actually throughout the Anglosphere um, engaged in the public education of children because the government decided it was compulsory and yet didn't build schools, all right? So the church's mission is what it is, and we need to focus on that 
Um, we need to recognize with sobriety the history of the way people have been uh, treated in those environments. Um, but we also have to figure out how not to give up on the Great Commission. All of that is complex. And so if you're looking for a ministry doing it today in ways that I think are very positive, maybe look at Ron Hutchcraft's On Eagle Wings ministry to uh, to Native American peoples or indigenous peoples here in the United States today. There you go. That's my summation of that. What would you pay for a slice of pie or a slice of cake? Yep, I might have to lead off tomorrow on Taste and See Tuesday with that question. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.